Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. There's a hush over the nerd world right now. It's episode 276 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, kind of getting back to normal this week. You know, my the big two-part San Diego Comic-Con episode is now in our rear view. We're in the post-con mode now, So, but not completely leaving Comic-Con in the rear view because going to be talking to the cast and the crew behind the Batman Hush movie from DC Animation and Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. And I got to tell you, you got a chance to see it early in San Diego. This is going to be one the fans are going to be talking about for a long, long time. And you'll hear some teases about that from the cast here coming up. Also, I mean, you, you heard the interviews last week from the boys' press conference. Finally going to give my spoiler-filled thoughts on the first season of the, of the boys from Amazon Prime Video. And you know how things are going to start out? A couple of big comic book releases for a fifth week. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, the writer of Micronauts, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels so nice to slide out the long box, doesn't it? Also firing up that tablet and laptop. Hey, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and the X-Men relaunch continues, even though this is the fifth week of releases. Technically, July 31st was on new comic book day so it was a fifth rare fifth week so we get powers of x number one this week from marvel comics jonathan hickman writing that one rb silva and adriano de benedetto on the art Marte garcia on the colors and vcs clinton cowles on the letters from designs from tom muller too by the way now it's really going to be hard to talk about this without spoiling it, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. Maybe, maybe a couple of minor things just so we can talk about almost anything. But really, this book, whereas when we're talking about House of X, where this one's kind of different is it's really a story of the past, present, future, and long-range future. We get to see pre-Krakoa a little bit. We find out that House of X number one was a bit of a turning point for everything that's going to be happening in the future and then what the aftermath of that will be. There's also a very deep explanation as to what happens in the future and why. Now, the only problem is once we get there, things get a bit confusing. Now, this is one thing I'm going to have to spoil a little bit is how in the future, how mutants are, I'm not sure created is the right word for it, engineered might be better word for it basically you're taking pieces of dna from past mutants and combining them to make new mutants as a matter of fact there's a mutant in this book rasputin 4 who is unbelievable that's the that's the only way i can think to describe it she's incredible all the things that she's capable of and that she can do but yet how that's still a struggle. You can have all of this ability and still struggle. And there's a reason for that too, by the way. I mean, now keeping up with these new characters is a bit rough in this issue. And mainly because things just jump right in that quickly. You don't get too much of a base on the characters we're dealing with. So, I mean, it's not completely a surprise at the same time. 
but things just hit the ground running so much that it's it's really hard to find out where you, it's almost hard to get your footing and maybe that's a good thing depending on your perspective so it kind of makes this book really hard to rate only because there's a clear long game here to this story that plays out that's going to be playing out both house of x and powers of x and they very much do work together because we get to see some of house of x in powers of x so don't skip house of x number one by the way and go to powers you you're going to want to read house to be able to fully fully appreciate powers so they're not completely working together but certainly in concert together enough that you wouldn't want to miss one or the other but the second time i actually read this twice second time i read it i got a little bit better of an understanding of it and i got a little bit of a better appreciation of the story and what they were doing and there's also an explanation to this plenty of explanation in the book of what's going on and you know what you know where house explained what the worlds are and how things were divided up this is explaining more about who's in these worlds and how they came to be and who's kind of in charge and what's going on. So that's where these two things kind of work hand in hand. The art in this ob is consistently good in this series, just as good as, as, as House of X as well. There's a lot of stunning visual, especially once we get to those future shots. And while this story didn't blow me away the first time like House did... Again, when I read it the second time, I definitely got a better appreciation for it. And it's clearly a very, very important piece to this puzzle. And and in reading them both at the same time, I think it'll make you understand what's happening in the present by seeing what's happening in the future and knowing where things are going. So this is a pull for me, more so because of the story in general, not just this single issue, but I'm sold on this X-Men storyline, if that makes sense. So this isn't necessarily strictly because of Powers of X. It's the two of them combined together, making this vast and really, really in-depth story that I really appreciate that they're taking the time to do this with the X-Men, especially in a relaunch like this. Speaking of taking the time, this guy always takes his time with his stories, or not, depending on which, how you feel about him. Him and I have talked about this before. It's Manor Black, number one from Dark Horse Comics, talking, of course, about Cullen Bunn. Also writing this, though, with Brian Hurt, by the way, and Tyler Crook back teaming up with Cullen once again, doing the art for this book. Now, this is a story of Roman Black, and this uh, the part of the synopsis is on Dark Horse's website. He's the patriarch of a family of powerful sorcerers, basically. And there is a changing of the guard that happens in this family and the, and the reigns of what they call Manor, Manor Black and to be the representative of this power. So now Roman has to basically choose a successor who he's going to be giving this power to. And there's, oh, as there always is in the Cullen Bunn story, there's evil afoot. And there's people that definitely want to keep this power from being able to be transferred. Now, there's also a young girl named Ari in this book. We get to see her at the very, very beginning in in a very dire circumstance that we don't really know a whole lot about. And there's, there's an investigation into what happens with Ari. And all of this is happening, by the way, in a small town full of people who have no idea and are in no condition to handle a situation like this whatsoever. Whereas, if you remember Harrow County, the last time uh, Cullen and Tyler teamed up, 
yes, there was a similar feel there, but they had an experience before where the town did have that, you know, the the whole thing that happened with the witches and, and the burning and stuff like that. So there was a basis for it. This, there's really no basis at all. Imagine having something like this happen in a rinky-dink town that's never seen really anything of significance happen before. You know, that has the police force that's just there to kind of keep the peace and not necessarily have to enforce the law sort of thing because that's how small it is. So that becomes part of the story, at least in the early going. Now, there's a few things that we don't know after reading this first issue, like exactly what happens to the family themselves and, and why this is why why this power has come to be and why things are the way they are and why they need to name a success. We don't really know why for sure and what the circumstances are other than that giant hourglass, which you'll see when you read the book. There's also someone that has caused a major accident in the beginning of this book that is a complete mystery. The, the design of the character will look a little familiar. Too, by the way, I, and it's it's not that character, but there I did get some familiar vibes, and I won't give that away to you because I want to see if you have the same reaction that I did. We also need to find out who Ari is exactly because we don't really know, and we do see the worlds kind of collide a little bit at the end of this story. So there's that, and that much I can tell you, but we don't we know very very little about Ari, although the not your normal young woman, we can say that much for sure. Now, every time, I got to tell you, at this point, I think Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook should do everything together because I love the character designs in this book. I love the ominous backdrop. The story is, is just creepy enough, but also mystical enough to have that good balance. There's, there's also a lot of this book is so simple and normal, but the paranormal smacks you right in the face when it gets you there. And I love that. And to me, and follow me on this, and I could be completely off base, and this could be a weird comparison. I don't care. I'm going to make it anyway. This is almost like a mystical paranormal version of the Karate Kid. And I and Cullen's probably listening to this saying, what the hell is he talking about? Oh, follow me on this, because the you've got Roman who's like, the Mr. Miyagi to Ari's Daniel in a certain way, but with sorcery, if that makes sense. And I say that because there's a point at the end of this book that reminds me of a specific scene in the original Karate Kid involving Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. And there's, and I know that this wasn't on purpose at all on Cullen's part, but that it made me think of that. So if you want to take the Karate Kid and put a sorcerer's paranormal spin on it, you kind of, kind of get Manor Black, if that makes sense at all. But I love this book. It's a pull for me. And you might think I'm a lunatic when you read it making that comparison, but I'd be interested to see if you know what I'm talking about. That will definitely do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to be talking about the boys in Amazon Prime Video's first season with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Drew Powell from Gotham on Fox. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You've had plenty of time to watch that first season now. It's time for my spoiler-filled review of Season 1 of The Boys from Amazon Prime Video. I feel like I've talked about this show a lot already with the experience that I had at at Comic-Con and then going to the press conference and sharing those interviews, but I haven't actually given my impression on the show, and I've had some time to sit on this because I actually got to watch the show 
a little bit early. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to bog you down with, you know, what the story's about and everything like that. You know what it's about or you're going to end up googling it while I'm talking about it anyway. Plus some we're talking spoilers here. So, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of mystery, but I love the fact that this is the story of, you know, if superheroes actually existed, there would probably be horrible, arrogant people to a certain extent, right? And that's kind of what we've got going on here in the boys. And I also love that there's a company behind all this and they have their goals and they're, and it's not just about them being superheroes. It's about them being entertainers and social media personalities and movie stars and things like that. So it's almost like you're feeding that arrogance of this is somebody that already has powers. Now we're going to give them all these other things too and that's kind of where the ego comes from, but that also is where the pressure comes from. And that's where some of this prickish behavior comes from. And some of this unstable behavior comes from. Like like when you see A-Train, who's played by Jesse T. Usher, where, yeah, he's a jerk and he's arrogant, and he's, you know, pumping himself full of this compound V, which is like steroids for soups. And then you've got... You know, and and he does, and he runs through Robin. That's how this whole story starts, and that is one thing that they took from the comic that they did really, really well. Was when Atrian runs through Robin. You heard in the press conference that was a big part of what they wanted to do in the story, and they I think that as far as the source material goes, yeah, that's the one thing they had to get right, and that's the one thing that they did get right. But you see what happens with the pressure that comes from being not just a superhero but a personality. And part of that is what's going on with A-Train. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is excusing A-Train's behavior at all. He's a horrible, horrible person. I'm just saying that that is part of this story as well, is that this is how they're being presented. And then the whole trying to get superheroes as, as agents of the military sort of thing, which I'll get into here in a few minutes because I don't want to skip too far ahead. One thing I really liked that they did in this show is that you kind of brought the boys together in pieces, right? It wasn't just Butcher going up to Huey and telling him he can get justice for Robin. He brings him in and the group's already assembled. Now, Butcher already knows all these guys, but at the same time, you're bringing them along in stages. So you get Frenchie and then you get Mother's Milk and then the female eventually comes into the mix as well. This is in stages, and I like that it wasn't just all put in at once, where Hugh is just walking into a room with a group, and he's like, hey, here's Frenchie, here's Mother's Milk, and introducing everybody. There's obviously introductions that happen, but it wasn't Huey just walking in to this group. And let's talk about Huey for a second. First of all, I gotta say, Jack Quaid does an amazing job. And it wasn't just Huey trying to get justice, it was Huey trying to live his life after everything that's A, happened with Robin, and B, happening in her name, in a certain manner of speaking, because we know Butcher's pretty much got his own agenda, and everybody else is along for the ride, right? We see that play out throughout the season, certainly. But how it becomes more than just a revenge thing for Huey, it becomes him trying to live his life after Robin, and the depiction of that anxiety, and almost like a PTSD from seeing someone that you love literally get exploded in front of you and all over you at the same time. And then seeing the person who was responsible for that, A, not take responsibility for it, and B, have pretty much nothing happen to them as a result of it. How that anxiety 
and that PTSD and that rage builds up and works together and how that's really spotlighted and focused on throughout this story, I thought was really, really brilliant. And Jack Quaid sells it so well. But then you've got the starlight factor too. Imagine, you know, you're Aaron Moriarty who's playing Annie slash Starlight and you get your dream job, right? You get the job you've always wanted. This is the only thing you've ever wanted in your life. And then when you get there, you find out that everybody you're working with is awful. And it's right from the beginning. What happens with her and the deep and how the deep very much takes advantage of her. And they just all pretty much treat her horribly, except for Queen Maeve, who's kind of trying to tell her, you know, keep your chin up, stay strong. But it, it, it wasn't until towards the end of the first season where Maeve really starts to stick up for her. And in the, in the beginning, it was almost like a, hey, don't let them see you like this. Don't give them don't don't give them the satisfaction sort of thing. So it was almost like a, hey, chin up, kid sort of situation, which wasn't very supportive. And it isn't until later when her life is actually in danger that Queen Maeve actually starts to stick up for her. But then you have the whole relationship that starts between Huey and Starlight. And then he's got to balance the, well, I'm just doing this to get information and get justice for Robin. And then really falling for Starlight as well. And Starlight at the same time looking for that outlet of somebody that's not horrible and how her life is not completely terrible because now she has somebody like Huey in her life. And then to watch that towards the end of the first season, just not gradually fall apart, but like that in an instant, just gets snapped away almost as quickly as Robin was taken away from Huey. This whole dynamic changes between Starlight and Huey and Annie and Huey. However you want to phrase it, that's how it happens. And it's so quick that it's it was really incredible on how that was done as well. Now, of course, there's way more to that as the story plays out beyond this. So, I, you know, it's not like this is completely it for this part of the story. But I just loved their dynamic. And you rooted for them, too. They got you to the point where you were rooting for them and saying, well, maybe they'll find a way to make this work. Maybe they'll find a way to be happy because they both deserve to be happy, right? And then that gets snatched away from you with one shot from Butcher, right? To get Huey out of that situation sort of thing during the confrontation. So I really thought that that was brilliantly done as well. But one of the big things for me, not just Butcher, let's go on the seven side here for a second and talk about Anthony Starr's Homelander. Man, at the beginning, they make you feel like Homelander is that guy, right? Where he's the, oh, I'm kind of oblivious to everything that's going on. Everybody else is bad, but I'm super good. And then you find out he's the worst of all of them. And it just keeps getting worse as you keep going. You find out how terrible he is. And then he lets that plane full of people die. All in the name of, I just don't feel like trying to save them. And this can actually benefit our cause. So I'm just going to do it. And then that creepy relationship too, by the way, that he has with Elizabeth Shue's character, Madeline Stilwell, how he's kind of like stalking her and almost like a voyeuristic type of situation at first and how that's just a weird, weird dynamic, right, between the two of them. And it's very uncomfortable at times. But Homelander is the gateway to everything that has gone on with these soups. And every in this culture that's been bred by them and how he's the worst one 
out of all of them. It's really incredible how much you end up hating Homelander as this season progresses. They, they give you really no reason not to hate him. And then you find out that Vought is not only creating these heroes, they not only created them, but they're creating super villains to justify getting them into the military as well. And that was the other wow moment of the show, especially if you didn't read the comic, was, really? This is what they're doing? And it just shows you how far a corporation is willing to go to get what they want and to keep their brand alive. And sometimes that's what it's about, right? Keeping the brand alive at all costs. And from the outside looking in as a normal person, you look at that and you go, that's awful. And then you think that on you know, a smaller scale, because we're not creating superheroes here, that stuff happens in real life where it's the brand above all else. To hell with everything. We're going to make sure that that money still gets printed and that everything is still going according to plan because we've got a brand to protect here. So screw everything else. And then you see, and that's what makes you root for the boys, right? Because they're battling against that brand, right? You've got Butcher who is carrying the flag of, you know, we're going to take down the soups and we're going to shine the light on them and all this is going to be over. But then you find out how Butcher's kind of in a very John Constantine-esque way. He's got what he wants and that's what he's got his focus on. Whatever ha- what happened with his wife and Homelander, he wants justice for that. He wants to know what happened with his wife. He wants Homelander taken down and if he can't get that, then screw everything else. He's only going to accept a version of this outcome where Homelander goes down, and it is to their detriment. It's to the group's detriment. So then it makes you hard to root for Butcher, and by extension, the boys. But you've got Laz Alonzo's Mother's Milk, who was amazing, and he really was the moral compass for the boys. When Laz Alonzo was talking about that at the press conference at Comic-Con, that could not be more true. And that is a character that I drew to, and I found myself rooting for him over... Butcher, and by extension, kind of Huey, even though Huey was trying to do the right thing, then he was trying to play both sides, then it looked like he was switching sides, then it looks like he's trying to play both sides again, so Huey's indecisiveness could be a bit frustrating at times for me, so that was that was the other thing that made me hard to root for the boys, and then it gets you to the point where, well, who do I root for then? And you're certainly not rooting for the seven. That much is for sure. You're not rooting for Vought. You're not rooting for the Seven. But you're looking as a viewer. You want that thing to hold on to and root for, right? But Huey seems to be that thing that kind of clicks you back in where even though what he's doing isn't necessarily on the up and up, you still end up at the end of the day rooting for him because of not only what happened to him, but you feel like at the end of the day he's a good person, right? You sort of feel that way about Starlight too, right? So Starlight's kind of the one that you're rooting for on the other side, right? And by kind of extension, Queen Maeve, who seems to be the one that's seeing how awful things really are, and, you know, how did it get to this point, and what can I do about it now? But everybody's so afraid of Homelander that nobody wants to do anything, and rightfully so, too, by the way. And they pushed the deep aside, which no no problem with that at all. Didn't feel sorry for him. He got everything that he deserved and, you know, probably didn't get enough. By the way, that punishment was not stern enough for him, although the humiliation of that may be. And then A-Train, you know, you could say A-Train gets his, maybe, but does he really? Is that really enough? And is it ever really enough? That's the other thing that you that you get out of this is 
how much justice is enough and what brand of justice is enough. That's the other thing, too. You, If you want to take this deeper, you really can. Because that's one of the questions of this, right? And I will not go into... I'm just I'm not going to spoil the cliffhanger ending, by the way. I'm not going to do that. I know I said spoiler-filled. I don't like spoiling cliffhanger endings, though, okay? So I'm not really going to get into that. But the way the intensity rams up in, these, in the latter episodes, I thought was really, really great. I thought from start to finish... This show captivates you. It keeps your attention. It's written so, so well. It's paced well. It's a nice break from what you usually see in the genre. And again, this is, I'm starting to more and more feel like if when there's an adaptation of something like this and has source material in comics or in literature, I almost feel like you've got to distance yourself from it because you're getting someone's version or someone's vision of what this story is, right? So for anybody that's saying, well, they changed a lot in the comic, or they didn't do what the comic did. Maybe there's something, some stuff that needed to be improved upon. Have you thought about that? Maybe the comic itself, the source material, wasn't necessarily perfect. You can be one of those people that says, I loved the source material, therefore I wasn't a huge fan of this. Or you could be one of those people of, this improved on the source material. Or you could be somebody that never read the source material and appreciate this. I am in that latter half. Whereas... I think that this, A, improved on the source material, and I feel like this is one of those things where you could jump into this and not feel like you're lost because you didn't consume the source material. This is something you can appreciate from episode one through that eighth episode, which, by the way, eight episodes was an absolutely right amount for this first season. It's hard to imagine a more perfect first season of a show. You don't get perfect first seasons very often, but from the writing to the amazing performance, I didn't really get into how great Carl Urban was as Butcher in the rises and falls of his character. We didn't really even get into that that much, and he's the biggest name on the show. So that just shows you how great this cast was, that you get a big name like Carl Urban, and I've been talking about this for 15 minutes now, and I barely even brought up his name, and he was a huge part of this, and he was uh, he was absolutely amazing as Billy Butcher, and there was so much that I liked about how you know sarcastic the character is, and he brought the humor there, he brought the ruthlessness, he was a leader that didn't want to be a leader, then wanted to be a leader. There was so much to love about what Carl Urban did with the character of Billy Butcher, but yeah, there were so many amazing performances in the show that I could spend another 15 minutes talking about easily. I can't think of a single performance where I went, you know what? I didn't really like that. They were all good in their own way. The writing, so many performances that were so great. The Boys is something that if you haven't watched it yet, it's literally one of the cliches, what are you waiting for? Seriously, what are you waiting for? Go watch The Boys It's crazy. It's a thrill ride. It is everything you don't expect from a superhero show, and that is a very good thing. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Boys Season 1 from Amazon Prime Video. Up next, yeah, the con might be over, long over. We might be in a drought, but there's still nerd news to talk about, so we'll do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Time to find out if new actually means new. It's time for nerd news. Yeah, it's been a slow news week. You got D23 coming up. You've got Comic-Con that just ended. So we're kind of in a weird in-between place. There's still some interesting stuff that popped up, though. One of those being our first kind of teaser for the upcoming Walking Dead spinoff series that'll be here in the spring of 2020. Now, The Walking Dead on social media posted a little teaser of this new series that's going to be coming, which is untitled still, by the way. And basically, it was a, if you saw the teaser, it was it was a bunch of young adults saying, you know, what if you grew up in a world of safety and you chose to leave it and how there's other things that have been going on in the Walking Dead universe outside of the places that you've seen. So we're going to go to those places. We're going to see new people. We're going to see new dead. We're going to see new places. And that seems to be the tease anyway. And they talked a little bit about this at, at, at Comic-Con and the Hall H panel as well, where they're saying, I think it was Scott Gimple who said that there is a whole lot of world out there and it's about damn time that they get there, quite frankly. And I won't go through who the cast is or anything like that. You can find that down in nerdypodcast.com where you can go and find out who's cast, what the characters' names are. And I will tell you the tagline, though, for the series is that some will become heroes, some will become villains. In the end, all of them will be changed forever, grown up and cemented in their identities, both good and bad. So this will focus on a younger group, too, by the way, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But after 10 seasons and another spinoff, and we've got movies coming from familiar characters and maybe other spinoffs from familiar characters that are coming, I think now is a really, really good time to do something completely different, completely outside of the norm of what we're seeing. And this is from somebody who, by the way, I've always had a really hard time trying to get in to The Walking Dead. I know that people, I frustrate the hell out of people all the time when I say that because there's so many fans who love it, but there's also so many fans that I've talked to, so this is not just my personal experience, that are kind of burnt out by it. You you still love it and you want to love it, but you're burnt out by it because you feel like things have been a little stagnant. And that's not me saying this, that's fans that I've talked to saying this. So I think this is a good time to do something new, something different, something outside of this small world so far that we've seen. And we've already seen the worlds of Fear the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead crossover. Let's let's do something where this could be something, and I hope it is, that never crosses over to The Walking Dead world that we know. There's other places where this is happening clearly And that's something that we need to be exploring. And it looks like we might actually finally be doing that. And with the younger cast, too, by the way. So, I mean, when it says New Dead, I mean, you got to wonder how much different it can be at this point. I mean, I know they brought the Whispers in, and that was kind of different. And, I mean, even even Negan, even though he uh, he wasn't one of The Walking Dead, he was still, you know, something a little bit different. But this, just, they're giving the impression that this is going to be really, really different from what you've seen already from The Walking Dead. So I'm cautiously optimistic on this. I think this is exactly what the franchise needs, especially to bring in new fans. Because, like, when they did Fear the Walking Dead, yeah, it was new. Yeah, it was different. Yeah, there were some different characters. But it was, like, new pressed right up against familiar 
right? So you weren't really stretching things out too far. So it was too comfortable. This feels like a little uncomfortable, like you're really trying to take a chance to do something different here. And I think that's exactly what this franchise needs. Here's a show that's kind of slid under the radar of all the news when the, you know, with Comic-Con, pre-Comic-Con and all that other, other stuff. And that is a show coming to HBO called The Nevers. And it's from Joss Whedon too, by the way, which correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't this his first series launch since Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I could be wrong on that, right? This is going to be a sci-fi drama. It's going to be starring Laura Donnelly, who you might remember as Jenny from Outlander, any Outlander fans. And it's about a gang of Victorian women who find themselves with unusual abilities, relentless enemies, and a mission that might just change the world. That's kind of all we get on this, by the way. And it's filming right now, so we don't really know as far as release dates and stuff like that. But they announced a whole bunch of cast. You've got Olivia Williams going to be joining the cast, James Norton. We've got Tom Riley, Ann Skelly, Ben Chaplin. Enemy, you've got detectives put in the mix there as well. You've got a pansexual posh boy. That's Hugo. That's James Norton's character. And you've got Pip Torrance, who's going to be playing Lord Masson, who is a staunch, unflappable, and merciless in his defense of the British Empire. So it's almost like how I felt when I first heard about Carnival Row, which, by the way, already has a second season renewal, and the first season's not even airing for until the end of August. So there's that. But that's kind of how I felt when I heard about Carnival Row. Now, this might be a little bit different. Obviously, it's going to be a different story with a different take, but you've got, again, this Victorian era, and you put sci-fi in the middle of it, right? And I think that that is a very interesting angle to play up. Not necessarily something that we haven't seen before. We've certainly seen that attempted before, but... I don't know, just I feel like HBO has such a good track record when it comes to things like this that I feel like if anybody's going to be able to do this right and do it differently, it's going to be HBO. And Joss Whedon is going to be the showrunner, by the way, but also bringing along Jane Epsonson and Doug Petrie, who worked with him on Buffy. So there's that, so there's some familiarity there. So, But I think that this is the ability... To tell a little bit of a darker story, right? Because you're on HBO and take a little bit of risks that you wouldn't necessarily be able to take on network TV. Plus, I mean, Laura Donnelly is a star. She was really good on Outlander, albeit in a supporting role. I can't wait to see what she can do as the lead of this series and really take it to another level. And she was a, you want to talk about a no-nonsense strong woman on Outlander in a show that was... That's pretty full of those. She stood out when she was on the screen. So she will definitely be able to carry the reins of her own show. And and as being the lead of this series, I have no doubt that she will be absolutely amazing at that. Speaking of strong women, of course, Supergirl portraying that quite a bit. And we have a little, little bit of casting news for Supergirl. And that's Jennifer Cheon Garcia, who's been cast in the show to play a villain named Midnight. This according to Variety, who first reported it. And basically, Midnight is the physical manifestation of darkness and a murderous villain released from an otherworldly prison to exact revenge on the person who put her there. Now, automatically, you're thinking John Jones, Martian Manhunter, right? Because who else could have put her there? 
But then I did a little bit of digging because it, something just seemed like it was a little bit familiar here. And then I remembered in Superwoman, I think it was Superwoman number 15, where there was a character that came into that story named Midnight that was actually created by Lena Luthor. So I'm like, well, that seems to make a lot more sense. So if you're looking it up, by the way, you replace the eyes in Midnight with ones, and that's how you come up with this character. Because basically, if it's in the Volume 3 Superwoman uh, if you're doing the graphic novel thing. And Midnight's actually a computer code that was created by Lena to free her from a dimensional prison. Free Lena. So they're just doing a little bit of a different spin on that, maybe. I mean, I, this is obviously not confirmed or anything like that, but it seems like that's as, as close as it could possibly be to the description that they gave. And, I mean, she could do a lot of cool stuff. She she lives in this area called The Void, which is where, like, the code lives. She's, like, living in the code, basically. She can teleport, open up energy holes, stuff like that. If you want to see a picture of the character, go to downandnerdypodcast.com and search for this story. And I put up a picture of one of these Superwoman covers where the character appears. Very, very cool-looking character. So I'm really hoping that this is what we're going to be getting. So, that, you know, let the speculation... Sort of continue. If you if you think that that name's familiar, Jennifer Chong Garcia, she was actually Ivory on Van Helsing for a couple seasons there. She also had my, very minor roles like SCPD officers in Arrow and Flash as well. She played, she was, a I think, a paramedic on Flash or something like that. So she's no stranger to the DC Universe, but this is definitely a spotlight role. Now, you might have heard Midnight and think, oh, is it the detective character from DC Comics history? No. It's not that midnight. It's also not Midnighter either, which when I first saw the headline, I thought that's who it was. I thought it was Midnighter. And I thought, oh, they're going to bring another LGBTQ character to Supergirl. That's cool. I mean, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I'm interested to see how they'd fit Midnighter into the story. But I think that it could work. I still do, actually. So even though I, I read this wrong at first, I thought to myself, you know, Midnighter on Supergirl wouldn't be a terrible idea. I think that that's something that they could find a way to work in. At some point, I think Midnighter on TV would actually work really well. I'm sure Steve Orlando would agree with that. I, I really hope we do see that character at some point. But this is it's good to know that we are going to have another villain on Supergirl other than the whole, you know, what's going on with Lena and Crisis on Infinite Earths. And this is an, another new wrinkle to the story that in this recurring role, I'll be curious to see how much this is focused on in this upcoming season. Speaking of upcoming seasons, this is like the worst kept secret in Marvel TV, maybe ever, because it was finally confirmed, Marvel finally confirmed it from a video from the Runaways social media pages that yes, Runaways and Cloak and Dagger will cross over, and now we at least know details that we know that it's going to be in the upcoming season of Cloak and Dagger, that, I mean, excuse me, of Runaways that's going to be on Hulu, starting, by the way, on December the 13th. And yes, all of the episodes will be up at once. So you don't have to wait for this, you know, the weeklies or anything like that. It, it just makes sense for this to be crossover. There was a little bit of turmoil at the end of last season on Runaways, which I won't spoil for you just in case you haven't binge-watched and caught up with this yet. But I remember, if you saw the season finale of Cloak and Dagger from this past season, there was definitely hints there of a crossover when I talked to Jeff Loeb at WonderCon this past year. There was a question asked about it. He was really coy about it. So it just really seemed like this was going to happen. And now it is. And this is not without precedent either, by the way. We've certainly seen 
These worlds kind of come together in comics before, and it makes sense because you've got a sorceress that's going to be a part of this season, Morgan Le Fay, who's going to be played by Elizabeth Hurley on Runaways. So, you, you know, Ty and Tandy could certainly help out with that. It just makes sense. It just, Especially these young fan bases cross over so much anyway. It makes sense to bring these worlds together, and it seems like it's only going to be for an episode. That the amount isn't really confirmed or anything yet. I could see this maybe drifting a little bit more, but it certainly seems like it's it's a nice change of pace for the cloak and dagger characters, and it's a nice way to incorporate more of a universe into these shows that didn't really seem like they had one before. And of course, I've certainly been a critic of the whole "it's all connected" thing. But it's just nice to know when certain worlds do live together to where you don't have to let them affect each other necessarily, but you know that if you ever wanted to bring them together, they're there for each other sort of thing. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, let's go inside the press room for the Batman Hush animated movie. We'll talk to the cast and the crew next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the story that personally I've been waiting for for years. Batman Hush is finally being made into a movie. Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Animation doing that. So I was so happy to be able to sit down with the cast and the crew of that movie. As a matter of fact, we're going to start with screenwriter Ernie Altbacher. The first question for him was, did you want to stick to the source material or create something new with this story? Look, I love the entire Batman Hush saga, and as soon as they do the 10-episode version, I'm watching that. But we had to get it down to 75. It turned out to be 80 minutes or so. And so we were going to have to lose things. And so it was really hard. To, like People were like, oh, that's my favorite scene. We can't lose it. You know? But by changing a couple things, some scenes fell out, and it enabled us to get keep everything we loved about Hush and the tone of it, and, but make it something that was animatable. My question to Ernie was, was there anything that you added to the story you felt was necessary to tell the story? Was there anything that you added into this that wasn't in the comic that you felt like was necessary to tell the story? Well, because of the problem we had with length, I was looking for places where in the story there are a lot of kind of red herrings, and I was like, what would happen if one of these red herrings was the way we go, and we could totally fake out the fans, you know? And by making a couple of those choices, some scenes fell out, and it became a little bit easier to produce. But as I said, it's a it's a dozen book series, right? Uh, so you can't get that into into seventy five minutes. It's impossible, you know. So we did have to we did have some streamlining to do, and that was that was the hard part of it. Next question was: Was there a character that you really enjoyed writing that you really wanted to do more within the story? I really like Nightwing. You know, if there was a character whose role maybe slightly expanded a little bit, it was Nightwing. I, I just love writing for Sean on this, uh, and uh, I just thought he had a lot of great scenes in the comic with Batman and their relationship of, of him kind of saying, hey, this is okay for you to be in this relationship. You know, I, I, I really advise you to do it. Batman's like, shut the hell up. 
<laughs> but he does listen. He respects Dick Grayson. He respects Nightwing. So uh, it, it kind of shows his sway. And the final question for screenwriter Ernie Altbarker was, was it difficult to find the time to fit in all the amazing characters from the story into this movie? Well, you know, that is one of the difficulties with this, is that it is a rogues gallery, so everybody kind of appears, and then they get defeated and, and put on the shelf a little bit. Um, and I've been at this long enough to, to know that every scene, every sentence counts, so I'm like... Boy, I only got one Harley scene, but it's a doozy. I cannot blow this. Oh, I've only got like one and a half Superman scenes. It's got to be fantastic. I've only got one Joker scene. This thing's got to be great. So I just went over and over and over those. So they only have a scene or so. It's like, well, um, Anthony Hopkins won the Oscar for uh, Hannibal Lecter, and he was only in the movie for like 16 minutes. You know, so I, I just picture these guys are coming out. I know they're going to give their A game for uh, for the scene, and uh, I got to I got to make sure that I can distill how they appeared in Hush and and give them something worth. Next to sit down is the lovely Hinden Walsh, who plays Harley Quinn in this movie. And the first question for her was, how do you get into character as Harley? Well, I'm really big on just feeling it. Like, I'm, I don't go from the outside in. Like, what does it sound like? Now, you know, it's more like, what's it feel like? And then the voice just comes after that. Um, she's me, just as all the characters I play are me at some level. Um, when I started doing Harley, Andrea Romano cast me, and she said, you know, don't go watch Batman the Animated Series. She said, go watch Born Yesterday, the old, old movie with Judy Holliday. And she's like, let me hear what you have in mind for it anyway. She's like, yes. And what I had in mind for it was, when I was a kid, I did a tour of Gypsy, and I played a little girl named Agnes, and she sounded like, it's a real-life theater. <laughs> <laughs> so that fit right in, yeah. So that's what I think about. And then just kind of go there with wherever the script goes and go as crazy as she goes. The question I had for Hinden was, will we see a little bit different version of Harley in this movie than previous times that you've voiced the character? We see a little bit of a different Harley in this movie than you've been used to playing in the past. I think she's pretty on the level of kind of the dark, realistic films. Like the voice acting in this movie is just... It's great. It's so understated and realistically felt. Um, Harley in this movie is very Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn, going back. Uh, so she's pretty traditional, but yeah, like more in the line of Batman Assault on Arkham and that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Next up was the man himself, Maury Sterling, who plays Thomas Elliot and Hush in this movie. And my first question for him was, what was it like playing Hush? So this is a pretty intense personal story. What was it like playing Hush? Um, it was, I mean, it's, it was super, it's fun. It's fun to play the bad guy. Um, 
but yeah, it's an intense story, which I've learned a lot more about, sort of as as I've been around it. But yeah, it's 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 dark. The next question from Maury was: Was it challenging to play two two different versions? of the character Thomas Elliot and Hush. It's what I love about doing it. So yes and no. I mean, I think that, that those are the challenges I like um, because it's how do you, as how cleanly can you differentiate between those two? Um, I feel like, and I don't know if I'm remembering this exactly right, I feel like in a way they helped me because as I remember, it's like we're hiring you for Thomas Elliot. Um, oh, and you'll also be playing Hush, which, duh, because, right, it makes sense. And so I don't know if I'm remembering correctly that's but, but it helped me because I I think I went in and did Thomas Elliot and then came back and did Hush which just helped me someone might have a different story on that but that's the way I remember it so it really helped me separate the two um, which I think just helped it just helped keep them very separate like two different people uh, which was cool and that made my job a little bit easier so my next question was what do you think is the most interesting aspect of Hush what do you think is totally. the most interesting aspect of that character of Hush yeah. that, he's, that he is ahead in the chess match um, that he does have this you know sort of almost military tactician Sun Tzu kind of methodology where he actually is ahead of Batman is pretty cool like it's really it's really cool um the writing is so good that helps us so much um but yeah to get a play someone who's powerful like actually powerful a lot of villains i think you can kind of see how they're powerful and then you see their flaw and hush in a way is like no i've got this and that's that's and he does for a while he does for a while. It backfires, you know. But that, and I don't think he's, he isn't that way inside necessarily. It's he's so troubled, whatever. But I think in this, it, that's what came across for me as I was playing it is like, for most of it, he's got it. Final question for Maury Sterling was, why do you think this story resonates with so many fans? I think in the pantheon of, of all of this, it's got, it's, it's a real... I think Batman goes through some real changes in this. You see a really different expression of Batman and more vulnerability. Um, he feels like he's changing in this, so you see difference in him. Not to mention he's really challenged. Like he's really, really, really threatened. And you get to just see one villain after the next. I mean, it's just, it's so freaking cool how they each they just they keep coming and coming and coming so you get all these different and you get the history I think it's cool that you get the sort of Thomas Elliot part of that too of the, of the backstory of childhood and, and moments of there's a really sort of touching scene between Thomas Elliot and Bruce Wayne that's you know about their childhood you know and loyalty and, and that piece and how Batman says I don't think they're all spoilers he's like I want to be a better friend you can feel him starting to go maybe I don't want to be the Batman as in that way anymore, or different, at least. So I think that's really cool, to see the iconic character make a change. And there are a lot of them, I think, in the movie who are other characters as well who are kind of going through shifts. We're taking you inside the press room from the Batman Hush movie at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Next up was Bruce Thomas, who plays Commissioner Jim Gordon. The question for him was, as someone who's played Jim Gordon before, do you have a favorite actor who's portrayed him and why? I just love Gary Oldman to death. And because he walks that 
in every single scene that he's done, he's walking that line between love and hate for Batman. This just this need to have him as a com- companion, as a, not a companion, but as a as a partner in crime, but also wanting to arrest the guy. And so I think there's that huge battle and that the dichotomy in his mind every single day. And, and he plays that beautifully, I think. And, and in particular, Oldman's performance showed me the kind of emotion that a father has in the way he protects the people of the city. And that, for me, really rings a bell. I'm a father, and I, me, Bruce, that's, that's, that's what I try to bring mostly to Gordon, to playing Gordon, is that the caring that he has for people, for all people. Next to sit down was Jeffrey Aaron, who plays the Riddler in this movie. Now, the first question for him was, how do you feel when they approach you to play the Riddler in this story? I was a fan of the Hush storyline, and and when I found out that I was going to get to play the Riddler, I was, I was very excited. He's a small part, but he plays such a big part of getting all these bad guys together. So it's like, and this story is so cool. It's like it gives us the romantic Batman that we kind of wanted to see with Selena Kyle. He, he gives us this the emotional pulling back to his childhood. I mean, it puts him on the ropes. It's always good to see Batman fall to a little bit, you know? He's such a sociopath. He's usually like so like, mm, to see him get nervous is really, really fun. And like, the kiss with Catwoman, you know, not to spoil anything, but like, it throws him, you know? It's like, if you're on your job and you're thinking about like, you know, the burgeoning love in your life and you're Batman, it's one thing if you're like, you know, just doing a regular job, but if you're like on the edge of a rooftop, you know? <laughs> and you're like, you should be focused on the bad guys and you're thinking about a kiss, you know? That's a, that's a big chink in the armor, you know? So you know somebody had to ask it, right? So the question was, what was your favorite version of the Riddler? The animated series Riddler was my favorite iteration of the Riddler. You know? Yeah, John Glover's like take on it, the real like pushing into the cerebral aspect of what who the Riddler is, you know, and that sort of upper class, you know, I'm smarter than you are, and I'm toying with you because, you know, but also respect for Batman. I thought that was, I thought that was incredible. Next up, listen to Jeffrey Aaron describe his Riddler in this movie. My Riddler is really, really focused on Batman. I feel like he wants to be Batman, you know? He matches him wits-wise, intelligence-wise, but physically he can never live up, and I feel like that's his source of, like, angst and villainry and anger. He wants Batman to see him and respect him, but he also kind of wishes he wasn't such a nerd, you know? And I think that that's, I think that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. So my question for Jeffrey Aaron was, do you feel like the Riddler is the most fun Batman villain to play? Do you think Riddler is the most fun Batman villain to play? I mean, I think I think I think this Riddler in Hush, I think honestly and not just because I'm playing it, it becomes it is the most fun I can think of getting to play, you know? I mean, not to spoil anything, but we take him to a lot of different places, even though he's such a small part. But um, you know, the Joker, I, 
you know, if you ha- if you put a gun to my head, you know, yeah, the Joker yeah. is just and Mark Hamill's the Joker. I don't even know how you would approach, you know. It's amazing what they've done. We've seen so many different Jokers and they're all amazing, but it's like Mark Hamill is on my head as the Joker. Keeping things going, Justin Copeland, who directed Batman Hush, sat down, and the first question for him was, what was the most important thing from the comic that you just couldn't wait to do in this movie? I really liked um, Batman's relationship. I should say Bruce Wayne's relationship with Tommy, uh, his childhood friend. I thought that that was interesting. The more human you can make Bruce Wayne, the more dramatic the story is going to be. You know, because like, where does Batman end and where does Bruce begin? Like, that's fuzzy, you know. So, there's some scenes uh, with Tommy that I think are really cool. Um, there's also a scene at the end that James Tucker himself boarded uh, that's fantastic. It's really good. It's really, really good. So I had, a, I had a blast doing that. So my question for Justin Copeland was, having to keep the story so tight that they did, was it difficult to incorporate such a large rogues gallery? Did that make incorporating this large rogues gallery more difficult in saying that? The difficult part of incorporating a rogues gallery is you got to give them their due. You know, you got to make... Like Riddler has to be Riddler, you know, uh, Poison Ivy has to be Poison Ivy. Joker, that scene was hard as heck, you know, that that one matched the comic book pretty good, but you got to bring Joker out, you know what I mean? So that's the difficult part, allowing these characters to be themselves, it's, it's, it's tough. That was interesting when you have a different person voicing the Joker in one of these movies, and Jason Spisak had that job for Batman Hush, so how was it to get the chance to play the Joker here? Super honored to get a chance to do this, man. I mean, it's not only is it a great story, Batman Hush, but the fact that they've created like a whole new Batman universe that I got to kind of just do my own thing as the Joker and not have to imitate anybody else is super, it was a big honor. So yeah, very, very lucky guy. One thing that I wanted to ask Jason Spisak is, is it nice to be able to play the Joker with no real restrictions. Is it nice to be able to play the Joker like that where you feel like the handcuffs are on yes. you got to do whatever yeah. you want with the character? But even though yeah. it's such a small part of it, so you feel like... Feel handcuffs? Like- Ooh, kinky. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's very liberating when they just say, look, go for this. Go for broke. Do what you want to do, what you hear in your mind. And I literally got plenty of opportunities to reach in deep, deep as an actor, and there's a brutal scene in the alley, there's lots of, you know, comedic scenes, uh, and uh, this whole range of the Joker for this particular Joker, he, he has a big gamut in a short amount of time, and I really enjoyed that, so yeah, incredibly liberating, and go for work. Just seems like a natural transition to go from Joker right to the Batman, and that is Jason O'Mara. The first question for him was, how is it like playing a romantic version of Batman in this movie? I don't, I don't look at it that way. Um, I'm playing a version of Batman who's, who's, who's a father that's been established and son of Batman, and then that sort of evolved over Batman versus Robin, Batman Bad Blood. And we sort of carried it through Justice League versus Teen Titans and all the other Justice League titles and the Superman titles. And so now we have a situation where um, that same version of the character um, while in a state of extremis, um, fall, falls for someone, you know, um, and he's completely taken off guard by it. In a way, the timing couldn't couldn't be worse, you know. And so, um, I feel like I feel pretty strongly that for the first time, 
uh, since I started playing the character that the lines between Bruce Wayne and Batman are really getting blurred here because um, really now how do you how do you define it is he Batman when he has the cowl on and Bruce when he doesn't but he's also a father and he's, he's, he's now a lover you can't really be yourself when you're trying to be someone else so I feel like the the line between between them is, is being blurred here and it's I find it really I find that really exciting because I think it's it's defining um, and uh, makes this version of the character kind of kind of unique my question for Jason Omar was is this the most personal Batman story that you've ever been a part of do you feel like this is one of the most if not the most personal Batman story you've ever been a part of yes but I feel like we've earned it like it's not like we've gone from a uh, version of Batman where he's just like He's Batman, and he's out there, and he's solving crime and kicking ass. And then all of a sudden, he's Bruce Wayne, and he's talking to Alfred. And you know, um, this this Batman has always had this sort of internal struggle, and um, and he's always struggled with holding his emotions together. Um, he struggled with his with his own demons and his own unique backstory. Don't forget, um, he was manipulated in a particularly grotesque way by Talia mm -hmm. that, that hasn't happened in any other Batman continuity. Right. So he carries that with him. And he's also trying to be the best father he can. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I feel like just as Batman Hush was era-defining um, as a graphic novel for its time, or as Batman issues, the 12 issues that were, you know, just instant classics uh, 15 years ago, um, I feel that this is continuity defining for for this particular series and um, there is a there's a group of Batman fans who have grown up watching these movies now which is very rewarding you know it's uh, uh, all I heard was uh, Kevin Conroy for the last like seven years <laughs> um, you know um, Kevin Conroy is amazing I'm a huge fan as well but um, there's now a generation of kids who've grown up watching these movies in particular and that that's uh, I must say that's really Rewarding. So, of course, Batman was celebrating 80 years at San Diego Comic-Con this year. So somebody asked Jason what it was like to have this movie come out during the 80th. Well, it's serendipity. I mean, you couldn't plan it better, <laughs> could you? Uh, also, like, you know, I suppose in a way I've been unfortunate in that I've never had a Batman standalone title at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. This is my first one, even though it's my 10th. So it's just the way the scheduling, you know, mm -hmm. release dates work out. And so that in itself is a, is a thrill. Um, Look, I, I think I think we are all servants to the character, um, whether you're playing it in live action or, or voice acting, or whether you're drawing an you know a, a frame or a cell. You have to serve the character. Um, the character was around long before I was born, and will be around long after I'm gone. And you just try to leave the character in a better place than you found it, and serve it as best you can, and and move on you know yeah. it's always an honor and a privilege whenever I get a chance to do it and uh, I and particularly so in this case I'm very very proud of this movie so the final question for Jason Omara was not really a question so much as Jason telling us a dirty little secret in his Batman fandom check this out I do have this weird dirty secret um, this has got nothing to do with Batman guys but I when I was a child no um, <laughs> no I do have this dirty secret that, that like one of my favorite Riddlers of all time is Jim Carrey in mm. Batman Forever like yes. I think he's good. He was good. I think he's amazing a man of many voices mm -hmm. like crazy like you believe he was like that 
that movie goes a little nuts so towards the end. But um, I think he's like a brilliant villain, and uh, I saw that movie many times, mostly because of him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Riddler's great too, and Jeffrey Arendt as the Riddler is spot on. I cannot really describe the level I was really looking forward to this Batman Hush movie, and I wondered, you know, how they were going to adapt it, and without giving anything away, because I don't want to, I certainly don't want to spoil anything here. They really took this in a direction that I did not expect. So if you're a fan of the comic, you're not necessarily going to see what's coming. I'll, I will tell you that much. You, you will not see what's coming. It, it, it's one of those things where if you've never read the comic, it's a great story. If you have read the comic, you're definitely going to have an opinion about it. And I will be giving my opinion on this movie at some point with spoilers. Because the only way to tell tell you my opinion on the story is with spoilers. So I'm going to give it a little bit because Batman Hush is on digital HD right now, but as far as the Blu-ray DVD is concerned, you're going to have to wait until Tuesday, August the 6th, which will also have the DC Showcase Sergeant Rock short on there too, by the way. That's why I'm waiting for the Blu-ray and DVD because I want to watch Sergeant Rock too. But thanks so much again to Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and the guys at DC Animation for letting me be a part of the Batman Hush press room at San Diego Comic-Con this year. So many great voice actors and so much hard work that went into this movie and it definitely shows. When I went to the premiere, I absolutely enjoyed every second of it. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Remember to follow along with any of our coverage of San Diego Comic-Con 2019 at downandnerdypodcast.com and everything that's happening afterwards as well. And also follow us on social media, doing some really fun stuff there, starting to do more polls and interactive stuff at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.